always been fascinated by talking to creative people, those who think differently, understand uniquely, and see the world in their own way. Now don't get me wrong, I love what creatives produce, but often, the story behind the story is what really inspires me, because I want to know where ideas come from, because that's where the magic happens. That's the creative backstory. I first heard of Sarah Milanovic because she is the fiddler for Jim Gaudet and the Railroad Boys, which is one of the bands that I love to go see live. And um, every time I saw one of their shows, I learned a little bit more about Sarah. And she's pretty fascinating. You know, she's played with Pete Seeger um, and she's played on Broadway and and. There are just so many interesting things. Um, she is a sub for a Broadway musical, Come From Away, which we'll talk about a little bit later. She started playing the fiddle at a very young age, at four, and she must have been really good because by age nine, she gets her own band, and most fiddlers don't get good for till much, much later. <laughs> and uh, so she started out playing standards for the locals and, and did well enough so that by age 16, I know I'm skipping over a lot, but she uh, dropped out of school and toured with uh, the Celtic bluegrass band, the McCrells. Sarah also has her, has a band, Daisy Cutter. They've recorded three albums. The most recent Northeast is an award winner and it's getting lots of attention for its storytelling. It's really clean, beautiful vocals and it's Northern charm. No pun intended. Welcome, Sarah Milanovic. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Kelly. It's so much fun to finally be here. This is awesome. I know we worked pretty hard on this. Um, we've been talking about this uh, podcast since the summer. So it takes us it takes us time. But I, I'm a firm believer that everything happens in its in its time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good things take time to work yes. out. So, um, so and here we are. I know. And it's good. It's finally, you know, it's good. I love spending time with female musicians because I feel like they have such a, a unique story and add a unique flavor to um, most of the things that they do from the writing to, to the playing. And, and um, I think there's a certain, there's just a certain nice thing about hanging with the girls. So I'm glad that we got to do this. So let's start with, you know, you were four when you picked up the fiddle. Your parents must have been pretty impressed with you because at nine you had a band. I I did. Um, and I don't I don't know if they were more impressed or if they were just surprised and kind of annoyed because I had been really um, enamored with the instrument from even before that, probably when I was three or did you know definitely when I was a toddler that's about all I can remember because I don't you know, who remembers that far back and um, right but I did end up um definitely pestering them and my my mom's parents my maternal grandparents as well into giving me a little violin for my fourth Christmas and then shortly thereafter I started taking uh, classical violin lessons locally and was also adopted by the old guard of local fiddlers in the foothills of the Adirondacks and Capital District in the Mohawk Valley, and including organizations like the Adirondack Fiddlers, which 
I was the youngest member at the time at seven years old. And that's when I met, that's when I met a lot of these uh, older, more experienced musicians who really took me under their wing and taught me fiddle styles, taught me how to play the old square dance tunes. And it was a really remarkable learning environment and a really unique upbringing to be part of the folk process um, in real time and really be part of that passing down of traditions from generation to generation. And my earliest fiddle mentor of that period uh, was a gentleman named Earl St. Ange, who turns, uh, he will turn 103 in January and he's still playing fiddle. I went up to his uh, apartment and jammed with him a couple of weeks ago and he just totally wears me out. Um, but guys like that would just, you know, you would play the tunes with them. And Earl eventually became the guitarist in my first band when I was nine, um, the imaginatively titled Sarah and Friends. <laughs> and uh, we started it. playing local local picnics and parties and the odd square dance. And um, it kind of took off from there. So I was a professional musician from a really early age and then got on the road as a teenager and never really stopped. And, you know, from there I, I had the opportunity to work with a lot of other um, incredible artists and to just learn a lot from working with amazing songwriters um, like Richard Schindel and also Kevin McCrell and uh, to really examining the folk process and and the social activism element of it from the the work that I did um, a little bit with Pete Seeger. And I was lucky enough to have moved down to the Hudson Valley um, to the town of Beacon, which was Pete's hometown. And to be there uh, at the same time that Pete was still actively performing. And so that was a, a really special experience as well. And definitely just took a circuitous route through a number of different traditional and modern music styles, um, explored a whole bunch of different fiddle styles, and then started exploring songwriting at a later age as well when I was in my 20s. And working with so many great songwriters really gave me an amazing education as far as figuring out what it was that I wanted to say when it came to my own music and then my own band. Yeah. And I always think like, it's very cool when you start young, first of all, in our local bluegrass association, anytime someone, let's say younger than 30 shows up, they just snap to it because it's their part of preserving the art, you know, as far as traditional music goes and, and, and certainly preserving the association. But, you know, it's funny that that happens everywhere there's a little kid that comes up to uh the local festival he's 13 he's pretty good on the banjo like he just walks around and sits down and plays with people and the minute you start to talk to him he's like you kind of forget that he's a young kid and he doesn't think about those social things to say so he just (laughs) you know it's just shut up and play with the little guy and he's great (laughs) so yeah it's, it's great and I, it's great for me too, now that I have opportunities to help do whatever part I can in passing along those musical traditions. Um, I take part in 
a traditional music camp up in the Adirondacks every spring, which is specifically geared for folks 18 to 30 some years old. Mm-hmm. And we get to talk about and, and pass around the songs and the tunes of the North Country in a real time setting in a space up there where they would have been played a lot. And it's a really special chance for me to do that especially now in the digital age, which has uh, so many advantages to transmitting information and connecting with people. And obviously what we're doing now is a case in point. Right, but right. It's really um, not a substitute for any opportunities to get face-to-face with someone and really continue what is an oral tradition in that way. So I'm kind of honored to be moving into that part of my, um, my, my musical journey where I, I get to pass it on to people who are younger than me now. And, yeah, uh, and also, you know, I also teach privately and, and do workshops and stuff as well. Um, but I'm still lucky enough to be able to play with, uh, with the older generation whenever I get a chance too. So that's oh, yeah. pretty special. And oh my gosh, Pete Seeger would be so proud of you. I've only, I, I saw him, I think it was his 80th birthday party concert. And we did that because he was the founder of Sing Out Magazine, which mm-hmm. is still out. And at the time we had um, our bass player was their managing editor for Sing Out. So I didn't meet Pete, but it was always fun to hear the stories about Pete and how human and how, like, what a regular guy. Oh, absolutely. And and that was, I didn't play much with Pete in, in any formal settings. I did record on one of his albums, um, the At 89 album, and ran into him a couple times jamming at local Beacon Sloop Club events and backyard things. But one of the coolest things about Pete being just the human that he was is as a resident of Beacon, you could be in line at the post office. And if you were in line next to Pete, you would just out of the blue be treated to this amazing story with some nugget of local or musical history or, you know, and not not at all in any sort of um, professorial way, but just in a neighbor's hanging out and waiting in line for your turn at the post office. And there was just so much depth of of information in that and then and then he would you know get in his little truck and off he would go um that was yeah just a totally totally normal down-to-earth guy who did extraordinary things even at that that concert i guess sing out offered to to send him uh send him a car to bring him from upstate new york down to uh philadelphia where the show was he took it down. He's like, nah, I got it. We're going to take the bus. <laughs> Can you imagine sitting on a bus with Pete Seeger? Anyway, this is about you. I'm sorry. I could talk about Pete all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great that people are still still um, talking about him. And uh, we all went out and bought the last round of stamps that came out with him at the speaking of the post office. And but now I have got them and I feel like they're they're collectible and I, I don't want to use them, except that I can imagine Pete totally shaking his head at the thought of people not wanting to use stamps to send mail for good occasions because we're collecting them. Right, right. Well, you know, he might make an exception for you. Let's just leave <laughs> it. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I think he was just one of the great things that I love about why I 
like folk music so much is just these funny stories and you don't think about it like my dad would always say things like kelly hank senior could see a chair on a porch and write a song about it and when i was young i'd be like we well, have yeah, a who want to listen to that and now it's like me i want to listen to that oh totally um, i mean it's it's the little it's the little things it's the little details of common humanity that connect us all and i we probably appreciate them more the more years of living we get under our belts um yeah because we can all take we can all take um comfort in the common things that we share and you know when i um uh, in 2012 or no 2011 sorry i was part of a band uh, myself and my guitarist and partner producer greg anderson and our good friends um, john kirk and trish miller from the Saratoga Springs area, um, multi-instrumentalist, fiddler, and clog dancer. We took part in a State Department-sponsored tour of Kosovo, Moldova, Bulgaria, and Turkey. And we were out for about a month. And we went around playing folk music in these parts of Eastern Europe. And even in places where we couldn't keep up with the language barrier, even though we had marvelous folks they're helping us out and and everyone was being incredibly generous and wonderful it, even when you couldn't quite keep up with that you could always find commonality in the fact that everybody likes music everybody likes to sing and play and dance and eat and drink and you there was never any lack of fertile topics or things to share just as fellow humans when it came to food drink and music in the arts and we got on amazingly uh what a cool opportunity like one of the things i was hoping to touch on uh, a little later in the podcast but here we are so i'm gonna go with it um you've been a professional musician for so long but unlike most careers where you know i'm an accountant or i'm a teacher or being a professional musician doesn't mean you do one thing like you teach fiddle or you tour with band ABC it's sort of just you you've done so many things and do you do you look at it as luck and hustle or do you look at it as studied I'm gonna go do this 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 and these are my goals like how do you approach music as a as a career is that a fair question <laughs> uh, it's a fair question um I feel like it should probably have some sort of caveat like um you know this is not intended as professional advice for no, no, uh, this anyone is just your story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as far as well, first off, I should say that my trajectory has been a really circuitous one, and it's not been that way for other. There are many other professional musicians who have taken a much straighter path where they found what it was that they really were focused on, or that was their musical identity or their choice of creative expression. And they followed that much earlier on. And it can be a much straighter shot. And there are some people that are professional teachers or professional symphonic violinists or professional just recording artists. And that's all they do. And they're quite amazing at it. And for myself, I would always, I'm definitely more of a musical mutt by my own definition. And like I said earlier, I, I grew up listening and learning from all these traditional styles that were around in the Northeast. So 
if you listen to my playing, you'll find a lot of influences. Like, uh, you know, obviously I played a lot of bluegrass. Um, I spent a good amount of time playing Irish and Celtic music. I also used to play for contra dances back in the day. And I know my share of some French Canadian tunes as well. And it was whatever was in circulation at the time. And so all of that is kind of in there, but I wouldn't claim to be really settling for, for an extended period of time in any one of those styles. And I think the same goes for my other professional work as a, as a violinist. Um, you know, the skill set of backing singer-songwriters is a lot different than the skill set of playing tunes for dances um, because you ha when you're playing a, a melody for a dance, you have to be driving the bus 100% of the time. When you're backing a singer, you have to be playing where the words aren't. And those are almost opposite approaches in a lot of different ways. So um, there's a lot of different ways to, to look at it, but I've, I've dipped a toe in a lot of different waters and I don't think a lot of it was by design. I didn't have a master plan or a five-year plan or like, you know, I, I'm sure some people do go to music school nowadays and uh, which by the way, I didn't, I went to Cornell university and got a degree in biology, but um, <laughs> which I'm not using, but um <laughs> You know, so my my theory, uh, which I've kind of been following for 20 some years as a professional has been just if an interesting opportunity comes up, um, be open minded and say yes. If it's right, if it's a good opportunity, obviously, if it's a there's a very fine line between taking every gig that comes along and and taking the ones that are really good. But a lot of benefit has been derived from just saying, yeah, what the heck, you know, um, sure. Let me give that a try. And that I think gains you a lot of experience. I, I, I don't want to say just anything like job security because we're all freelancers. It's a gig economy. There is zero such thing. Um, right. it's a, it's a total crapshoot. And, you know, if you want a, a stable source of income, most people do not become musicians with that in mind and and anyone that really does needs to have their head examined so it's not it's not about that at all but whenever i was presented with an interesting opportunity creatively or um professionally and the opportunity was there to say yes i found myself able to learn a lot from it and and mostly enjoy it and so that's how i ended up kind of hopscotching all over the place but it all is kind of adding up now um, when interesting situations have been coming my way, whether it's um, drawing from those uh, skills over the last 20 some years um, in arranging and composing my own music, figuring out what I want to say as a songwriter or how I want to arrange it for a band. It's that having that extra depth of knowledge is really, really invaluable. And the same goes with, um, I know you wanted to talk a little bit, we can come back to this later too, um, about subbing uh, come from away. And that was a unique opportunity that came out of the blue and okay. that I said can yes I to. Just, I just want to say, in case anybody isn't familiar with come from away. I just want to tell you a little bit about this musical, if that's okay for listeners. 
Um, it's inspired by true stories that have come out of, of 9-11 when right after the catastrophes that happened in DC and Pennsylvania, 38 planes were diverted to Gander, Newfoundland. So the US airspace was closed and 38 planes get um, diverted to Gander where they were grounded and they sat on the planes for a while. And then long story short, the people of Gander just sort of adopted these people for five days. And um, on the 10th anniversary of 9-11, um, the musical writers, uh, David Hein and Irene Sankoff visited, sort of compiled these stories, composited characters, and there's a musical. All right, now you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was that was pretty much it. So yeah, so the the musical has been running on Broadway in um, in New York for about five and a half years now. There are also touring companies. There's a Canadian company, a London company. Um, an Australian company, a an Argentine company, and there's a North American tour. And so I sub both with the Broadway company and the North American tour um, of Come From Away. And what was interesting about this is that, uh, with the caveat that I never had, you know, play on Broadway on my life bingo card whatsoever. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, because not that I, I wasn't, uh, not that I wouldn't uh, have wanted to do it, just that it there were so many insanely qualified players on the island of Manhattan alone that I figured I'm I'm not even going to bother thinking about that. I wouldn't have had you know the faintest idea how to get in. But as it were, the the book for the violin part or the fiddle part for Come From Away is unique. Because the story is told, like you said, from the perspective of people in Gander, Newfoundland. So it's it takes place mostly in Canada. And it's also told from the perspective of the stranded passengers. And But the story is set in Canada. And so it draws not only on uh, you know, theatrical scoring, but also heavily on traditional Canadian folk music and fiddle tunes as well. So there's a real hybrid sort of cross genre approach to the score for this. And there are eight musicians in the band. It's all live. There are eight musicians on the band, seven of which are on stage for most of it. And some of us are on stage um, pretty, pretty uh, prominently in certain parts of it. And so this, the skill set that was required was um, mostly reading the book, the, the classical violin parts, except a lot of times they had to be interpreted as fiddle parts. And then there were bits in the show where you would come out and there was choreography involved where you're interacting with actors and other people in the band on stage. And you're basically playing fiddle, fiddle tunes. Um, albeit very tightly choreographed, memorized down to the note, fiddle tunes in that traditional style. And there are loads of fabulously talented classical string players, and there are loads of fabulously talented trad fiddle players. And there are a few 
uh, a much a much uh, smaller pool of people who dip their toe in both. And it was out of that that I got recommended to um, see if I would want to come in and learn the book. And what that involves is, in case um, anyone was wondering, what that involves is once you get the sheet music in front of you, um, you get an idea of the choreography, you get to listen to um, recordings of the band playing playing the uh, the music. And then you go in and you have one rehearsal with the uh, music director and the band where you run through, not everything, you run through the, the salient important parts the of the stuff. score, the yeah. hard stuff. <laughs> yeah. uh, you don't do the whole thing. And then you get a walkthrough for the choreography with the dance captain and oh a couple God. of people on stage, but not the full cast. So the first time, assuming you make it through all of that, the first time you actually get to play the show from start to finish with your part, with the choreography, with everything in place the way it's supposed to be, is at your first show in front of a thousand people. Um, there's no rehearsal. No pressure. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> it it is as far as the process goes, it is it is insane. And you know, at, at any point, if something's not working, um, you know, you can you can be gone. So well, a it's lot an can insanely go high pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yes. And I mean, there was, you know, there's climbing on and jumping off of chairs involved and, um, and yeah, and remembering what to play when you're not in front of the music and then remembering how to interpret the music when you are in front of the music um, with the choreography, it was a really unique challenge. And it was okay, something how that many people said you were out of your skull taking this on. How many? <laughs> You know, I don't know. I didn't really ask because uh, I think people already assumed that I was out of my skull being a professional musician. So I, I think most people assume that ship had already sailed. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but the, the interesting thing for me is I realized that all of the stuff that I had done in the last 20 some years, um, learning the tunes and playing in Irish bands and playing in bands that played for dances who knew how to kind of uh, pace that kind of music and the classical violin lessons that I had taken and the, and the skills that I had built up from that and learning to, you know, read the music and write the music and, and the attention to detail that you need when you are recording in a studio where everything has to be controlled down to the, you know, the barest whisper of a bow because the microphones pick up everything. All of that experience was so helpful. I, I, I don't think I would have been able to do this random crazy Broadway gig without all of the experience that I had had leading up to that. And I was so grateful for every bit of it when I got up there because like, I think that's how I survived. <laughs> and, right. and yeah. Well, I feel like we have to, you know, steer back a little bit. You said your first touring experience was age 16. And somehow you convinced your parents that it was okay to stop going to high school. <laughs> and I, yes, <laughs> I don't know how you did that. Um, you can tell, you could tell us if you want. Um, and then you went on the road with this band, which is, I have to say my father, I did, I've done a lot of things 
but he used, you know, for the weird stuff I did, like when I worked for a football team, he worked for the football team too. Like there was no way he was letting us, letting me just off to do that. Okay. Anyway, I'm fascinated. I'm listening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, as far as the high school thing goes, um, you know, I, I was, I was doing really well academically. I was, you know, in the top three of my class consistently. And I was absolutely miserable because it was a high school environment that definitely prioritized athletics over the arts. And so as far as feeling like there was any place for that or any place for expression, um, one really felt left out and, and pretty, pretty miserable with it. So it wasn't that hard of a stretch to convince my parents that I didn't want to be there. Um, but what I did was I, I did homeschool myself my junior year. So I sent away for all the books and kind of made up my own agenda and was pretty organized with that. And so you and did, did that, that. You while you were on the road. I did that while I was on the road. Cool. And then in between, um, the next year I, in between tours, I went to local community college as a, as a, an early admit student and took freshman level college courses as a senior in high school. And that was great because it was a college level environment where you could just focus on what you needed to focus on. And, and, um, eventually anyway, didn't graduate from either of those things, went to Cornell. That was the first thing I actually graduated from. So, um, good job. Way to finish. So I did that. <laughs> so I did that. I finished a thing and, as far as the band goes, um, I will say the guys in the band um, were all veterans. They were all road veterans. They'd all already seen and done all the stupid stuff um, and seen what it did to other people in their position as well. And so I was really fortunate that I was going on the road with a bunch of guys who ended up being like my big brothers. And Really, it was a great education, and they were really looking out for me and making sure that everything was okay. And I think once my folks knew that that was the kind of band that it was, um, then it became significantly more okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, those guys really—they uh, really had my back the whole time, and to the point where I didn't even notice at times. And it wasn't until years later, when I was out in situations with other bands. And saw stuff going on and realized, oh man, if this had been me like 15 years ago, holy cow, you know, Um, but they really were great, you know, brothers in arms when it came to that and and looked after me. And it was a great hands-on school hard knocks road experience. I love that. And I think, you know, for a 16-year-old, the lessons you learned on the road were probably so much easier coming from a musician, friend, big brother, veteran roadie guy than from your parents who loved you more, but got listened to less. I don't know. I don't know. Everybody's different, (laughs) but I'm just speaking and, you know, but that's interesting. But they let you do it. They let me do it. And um, yeah, and it all worked out and I got to learn a lot and see a lot of the country and a lot of the world in a way that um, not a lot of people get to see at that age. And so it was, it was a really wonderful learning experience as far as that goes. And also a really good primer for how 
how much of a, a grind life on the road could be sometimes. And, but it was, it was great. Cause by the time I got to college, I had already seen so many drunk people in bars. I mean, once you're in an Irish band and you survive several St. Patty's days, um, you have <laughs> no desire to go out drinking in college. <laughs> you're like, no, good. I'm good. Yep. Well, the see, glamour was totally off. I mean, there was no glamour left whatsoever. It was, it was totally worn away. The facade was gone. And so, you know, it was actually pretty uh, good to get that out of your system. They're like, <laughs> you fools have fun. <laughs> exactly. That's pretty good. So I don't know. I feel like this is a good place to play a little bit of 87 North from your latest album, Northeast, which, um, I think is is great because you kind of described it as your country road song, but the wrong side of the country from the road songs that you're normally like. If this is not eastbound and down loaded, you know, right? <laughs> exactly. And 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 I, you know, as someone who grew up on songs like Eastbound and Down, that was there was this whole mythology of the road in all of that outlaw country and folk music and, and bluegrass music and stuff. Everybody's talking about hitting the road, hitting the highway, hitting the interstate, heading for the border. And everybody is wanting to go to somewhere, from somewhere, to someone, from someone. Sometimes there's illegal activity, but there is a huge subgenre of road songs in all, all across that kind of section of Americana music mm -hmm. and it didn't strike me until i started writing for the last album um how many of those songs were, were referencing the border and it was um always the mexican border and as someone who grew <laughs> up much closer to the canadian border the um, much I more used... demure border the much more justin trudeau border yeah huh? <laughs> yeah i mean i i when i got my first set of wheels i thought i'm gonna head for the border like those road songs and i realized you know i was a teenager and a used car and it was very unlikely that i would make mexico so canada seemed to be the way to go and then i thought about it a little bit further and, and realized that well you know there's always these interstates that get name checked in these songs um you know 66 and five oh, and even 95 and there's so many you know so many numbered roads end up in songs Right. And I had yet to hear 87 in any of them. <laughs> so I thought, all right, that's, that's going to be my assignment. I'm going to write a, a road song heading for the border about the interstate that I actually am near. I and it. it ended up being, and so it's, it is very much in that format. And we had a, we had a huge amount of fun um, tearing it up and picking and grinning in the studio. And the words kind kind of took on this, uh, life lessons, psychedelic approach of advice that, uh, you give to yourself. And so it's, it's, it's advice that you give to yourself, kind of a, a lesson in, in radical forgiveness in a way, but right. um, dispensed by a psychedelic cowboy character because of oh, course, yeah. you're near the border. I loved him. So I'm going to read a little bit of the lyrics. Met the cowboy prophet of the corner store grabbing coffee just before the border. He told me those that can afford the time to think don't seem to end up any smarter. Like that's as Southern a song as you could get. <laughs> Except they just say, bless your heart. You know? <laughs> well, that's the difference. See, that's a Northern song. Right. Because in the South, they would, you know, they might just say, bless your heart. And 
you know, in the North, we would have some kind of grouchy, pithy response to that. Right. And and I do that. That line is not one of them, but I do get a lot of fodder from old timers in parts of upstate where I grew up because there's just nobody better for one liners than old timers in rural parts of the state. It's oh, fantastic. Truth. I used to work for a guy who had the most colorful language. None of it I can repeat and be polite ever. And, you know, but there's some days that voice comes in my head, you know, and I just hear funny things like you're mediocre, but you're expensive, you know. <laughs> right. And it's and it's a very it's a regional sort of sense of humor as well. And we're very um, we have we have a very kind of dark, almost gallowsy sense of humor in the Northeast. Yeah. As as well that, you know, doesn't always play the same in, in other parts of the country, but it it is kind of our. It is kind of our regional sense of humor, you know, well, like you, uh, you sneak it in in this song, too, because <laughs> it's got that kind of it, it's it's a bit of a dark song. It's like full of, you know, regrets and I'm going to forgive myself because I have to. And we're fragile like a bomb and, you know, all these little like. But but the but the, it's pleasant to listen to. Let's listen to it a little bit. There's a point where you have to stop talking and just play.
you can be singing about the darkest time of life and want to dance to it. Like, oh yeah. I mean, (laughs) well, that's the bluegrass formula. I mean, you can, you can sing about anything. You can put, you know, triple murders in a song, but as long as you do it fast and in a major key, you can get away with it. But, but also, I mean, it felt like for 87 North felt like a good medium for that kind of take on things because, uh, you know, a lot of, like we were talking about our, our regional sense of humor is a little bit kind of gallows humor and, and a very pragmatic sort of humor. And I think it's, for me, I've never gone in for Hallmark sort of aphorisms about, you know, rainbows and puppies and stuff like that. Although I have nothing against rainbows or puppies. They're lovely. But when you grow up in a place where half the year mother nature is trying to kill you, it's, uh, there's a lot of, and, and especially when you grow up in a little bit of more of a blue collar section of that, the philosophy is sort of, uh, well, you know, it's stuff's going to happen. Life's going to happen. And I think humor is a a coping mechanism for a lot of people um, in that. And so it's it's also great to be able to impart that. I mean, story songs are great at sharing experiences and everybody can find something to hopefully relate to. And everybody latches onto a different part of their experience, hopefully. If you write a good song, hopefully people latch onto different parts of it because they speak to them for different reasons and you might not even know why. But for me, that's, you know, I, and I write a lot of dark songs, <laughs> but this one was was pragmatic because bad things are going to happen and this is about how how do you cope with that how do you move on and what advice do you do you give to yourself and then hopefully take which i'm still working on well and your (laughs) advice is completely true might as well forgive yourself if you're gonna stick around you know it's completely pragmatic but it's not it's not too pollyanna but that's that's roots and bluegrass music. <laughs> <laughs> when you write, you know, how much of the truth do you really want to tell? Or I've had Jim on the podcast and we talk about the carrot, like he's interesting. He He's such a different writer from you and both of you are great, but he writes about, I call it his guy. I call him Johnny in the basement is what I named him. <laughs> no. um, he writes about this guy that has nothing to do with his life or, you know, it's just sort of this down on his luck guy who can't get a girl and he's moving on. And, you know, I feel like all of his music as I've been with, with uh, that band has been this guy going through life. And I, I told him one day, I said, so you sort of remember, you know, you remind me a little of Springsteen kind of like that character going through life, you know, but you are, you have this more, are you the cowboy prophet at the corner store? I'm not the cowboy prophet <laughs> at the corner store. Um, that would be loosely based probably on a, a childhood friend's father, maybe. Um, who was not a cowboy, but was, you know, he was a man, is a man of very few words. And um, yeah, I I actually admire writers like Jim who write in character and tell these magnificent story songs in character and that you can just completely lose yourself in and have such a great time doing it. And they're these complete 
wonderfully developed stories. Um, I, I can't quite do that. My songwriting. So long story short, my songs are all true. They're not necessarily all true about me. Right. Uh, which okay. I have to explain to my mother every time I put out an album because <laughs> every time the last two albums ago, she called me up and, and said, Oh honey, I really, the music is really beautiful and everything, but um, I hope your life is better now. <gasps> and, um, and then I had to have a conversation as I do every album have to have a conversation with mom reminding her about poetic license and writing songs about uh, other people but just because happy you might be writing them from... great songs like happy people in their happy lives don't make great songs they're not very universal because most of us don't relate to you know that well yeah i mean when you think about it some of the worst stuff that happens ends up being the best stories mm -hmm. to all of us it, it could be you know, something as simple as the worst vacation you ever took. And, you know, the, you know, the car could have broken down, the weather was awful. And then you got food poisoning and you were up, you know, remember so-and-so they were up vomiting and then we ran out of gas. And, and five years later, it's like the funniest story that you can't stop bringing up. And, and I Kate, think it's, it's good to be back home again, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, it's, it's, um, it's tragedy. It's human tragedy in that way. Um, but yeah. I, so all of my songs for the most part are based on true events. They're not necessarily autobiographical. In fact, very few of them are, but they're all reflections of events that I've either observed or been part of either up close or from a distance or have happen to people that I've known. So they're not all necessarily happening to me. Um, the, the only one that really comes closest to that on the album is the title track, Northeast, which mm -hmm. I basically just set out to, it's, it's not really autobiographical, but I, I set out to kind of write a, you know, a, a theme of, of, of that, of the, of that experience, of that area, of being a person of that area. And that's the one that probably draws the most on my own personal experiences. Um, there are a lot of other songs that, I mean, well, Queen of Suburbia is fairly autobiographical and that's just, although it, it didn't actually go out and get drunk with an old friend and then write the song, but it's a, it's a hypothetical, <laughs> let's get drunk and question all of our life's choices you know, with, if you were to reconnect with an old school friend and then go out on a bender one night or something. And so it's, it, it's loosely based on that. And, um, you know, 87 North is based on true events. It's, it was sparked by the line about, um, had my passport in my glove box. That was true. Mm -hmm. I used to drive. I, when I got my first car, I used to drive around with my passport in the glove box, um, thinking that I would make a run for the border that, the Canadian border. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Understood. <laughs> and, uh, and, and somebody said to me, you know, that's a really interesting songwriting prompt because I don't know anybody else who used to drive around with their passport in their car. Right. Um, you should write a song on that, about that. And that song, it took a while to come together because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to say, but it, 
you know, a lot of the events are that sparked that song were from true events and the sayings and, and the advice is all stuff that I, I overheard and was trying to give to myself retroactively. Yeah. Yeah. So I just have one thing to add to our discussion of, of Jim Godet. I think you're selling yourself short and that his songs tell these stories yours do, but they tend to sell, they tend to tell stories in very short little snippets. Like, the sky was the color of a bruise. I already know what kind of day you just had just hearing that. Like when I listened to it the first time, I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> been there, done that. <laughs> we'll listen to that song in a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, yeah, all the songs are meant to be stories. It, they're all stories. They're just, um, Jim really excels at the character songs. He really And I have, I have characters in my songs. Right. Um, but mine are more mine are more bit players. They're more supporting actors. Jim is really great at writing lead players as as character in his songs. You know, that guy, the mysterious stranger guy. Yeah, we talked giving about them it. life. And it was so funny because one day I even asked his wife, I'm like, who is that guy? She goes, It's not him. <laughs> I went, I know. <laughs> Anybody who knows Jim has a good idea that it's probably not him. <laughs> but but they're so great. Like you want to sit, you don't want to, you don't want to know that guy forever. You just want to sit with him on the bus for one of his ride, ride, rides, you know? <laughs> yeah. The gym songs are so great at exploring kind of the what if questions of, of humanity in, in that, in, in these kind of sending these characters on adventures and having them, you know, living vicariously through the people in his songs, through the guys, yeah. through, through the Johnnies in his song. And so, um, yeah. mine are much more, mine are much more um, like, you know, events depicted are based on real life. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the biologist in you talking. So, <laughs> oh, it is. And let me tell you, <laughs> um, I, yeah, as a biologist, I can, I'm going to nerd out over this. <laughs> when you mentioned, um, when you asked if a song, my songs were all based on true stories. Um, the one that I meant to mention about that really was $2 town. Um, oh. even though 87 North is very much based on true stories and they all are, um, a $2 town, the stories in that song actually all happened. Um, they didn't happen to me. They happened to people that I knew. Um, so everything in there pretty much, they didn't all happen to the same person. It's a composite true story but every bit of that story is true and you know yeah it's it, that song took a long time to pull together because I knew that it was going to be a true story and I also knew that I knew the people that I was kind of writing about and there's a lot of responsibility that goes with that because you want to make sure that you're telling it right you're telling it the way that the story happened let's take a listen to it so so people who haven't heard you yet We'll know what we're talking about. And I like the the first line in this song, got a million dollar view of a $2 town. Like you've, you've set this up in such a way that, you know, all I want to know is what happens next.
by like weeds taking over in the hollows The summers and the children fly away with the swallows Is it a long time gone? Can you ever go? guitar in this song <laughs> did you know that um I meant to so thank you it was um it's so clear 
it's well it's interesting having come from um traditional music i think one of the one of the strengths of it is that it gives you such a great vocabulary to work with but if you're not careful that can also be a little bit constraining and i think that was something that i was a trap that I, I was more prone to falling in years and years ago. And um, I, I really want to get back to that in a minute, but just since you brought up the botany angle of things, <laughs> the oh, science okay. angle of back things to botany. earlier. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I have a, I have a biology degree. My concentration was in systematics uh, and, and like plant taxonomy basically. And I also grew up on a farm. So that, that totally true song, uh, $2 town, totally true, really dark song but there's a line in there about um you know this is the season of tall grass and that actually refers to cornfields because botanically speaking corn is a member of the grass family <laughs> so freaking free i always thought it was a grain <laughs> people um, always say it's a vegetable but i'm like no no that's a grain it's yeah it's a so yeah it's a member of the grass family it's its own kind of separate thing but there is a part of me that I, I have to make sure that everything in my songs are, is scientifically accurate. <laughs> like it has to fit poetically, but it also has to be scientifically accurate before I can. I love before I can put it out there. One thing I love so. about process and creativity is we we come as we are, and there's a place for it. You know, like you just make it work. I kind of love that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't. I, I wouldn't be me if I took too much poetic license, the science nerd and the, you know, I write all my songs. A lot of songwriters use uh, yellow legal pads. I use graph paper and number two pencils <laughs> to do my drafting. Um, it feels good to me. And that's kind of where my brain is. But, you know, I think it's probably the difference between a biology major and an English major <laughs> in songwriting. Probably, well, it's interesting because other people we've talked to visual artists one of them taught me how to mind map so i will do thing i know people can't see this but you know it's a song i'm i i thought about it's the concept of you know living life with by rolling clay dice like they're gonna break you know <laughs> like so i just drew a picture and then i'm just kind of wrote around it about what i thought you know but it's interesting that your process is graph paper it, it's so interesting. Yeah, I'm a I'm team graph paper and number two pencil. And and I use the clicker pencils too because I can't I mean I know that there's so many amazing pencils. You know, I was I was gifted some wonderful black wings and I haven't gotten around to sharpening them yet because you know I like the precision of the little clicker ones, but they're always sharp. They are, they're always there when you need them. Um and they have that but, satisfying click. Yes. Um, but thank you for, for noticing the, the fiddle approach on that song. Um, because yeah, I, I think as I've gotten more experienced and bounced around so many different sonic homes and artistic and creative homes, um, it's been the most interesting journey is to not only explore what's within musical traditions but what's without and oh yeah Love it's been re really fun to realize that 
yeah, I can, I can play tunes and I can understand why certain things go in certain places and why notes are allocated, why the certain accents go on certain notes and, and, and the dynamics go here and how that contributes to the overall energy and stuff, but also to step back from it and, and work with more contemporary singer songwriters and also work with more modern scores, like, like stuff that I've done, um, for Broadway for come from away and also stuff, um, when I've been asked to record on things like film scores where you're not necessarily wanting to reproduce a melody, but you're doing more of a tone painting kind of thing. Uh And the violin is really expressive for that. And there's this whole other world of extended techniques where in, in most, most teaching traditions, whether it's classical violin, um, you know, fundamentals or folk music fundamentals, this world of extended techniques exists very much beyond the boundaries of what we teach. And it's in, in the world across the boundary of, uh, wrong, like right and wrong, but wrong. Oh, you can do a harmonic. We'll make it sound really scrapey and wispy and everything. And you would never do that in a kind of straight ahead performance sort of environment. But it's the perfect thing sometimes for putting behind a certain line in a film score or something in a Broadway score, or if you're trying to make a texture in, you know, behind a lyric in your own song, to think of it not as how do I make the most perfect tone and the most perfect note, but what is a tone that I can make with this instrument that will really suit the color and the story that's going on here. And that's been one of the most interesting and inspiring things that I've found in the last few years and have really been enjoying exploring that um, even with my own bands. Cause when I have the full band, I, I get to break out my pedal board. And so I have a lot of pedals that were more vintage analog guitar pedals meant for electric guitar. And they lend themselves really nicely to the fiddle. And when you combine that with these techniques that, you know, have become familiar over years and years of just exploring what your instrument is capable of, you can get into the most interesting territory. And so I'm really enjoying working with things like, you know, extended reverbs and choruses and, you know, my little distortion pedal and, and delays. So, so yes, in that regard, it is more like a guitar and I'm so chuffed that you noticed. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I like that. I like taking, you know, in my band, we we're a cover band and I can't say, you know, I want to say we are regionally sort of familiarly known, you know, we just play because <laughs> we like it and, you know, the, we're, we're not going to get rich off of it, but when you do something when you play something on a banjo that wasn't written for banjo, like we could silence a room and that's a good feeling, you know, like that's amazing. So we put Andrew Lloyd Webber's memory from cats. We do it as a bluegrass song. (laughs) Oh, I love it. People just stop because they'd never thought of it. But I think that's what we should do as artists. We're always turning things upside down and yeah absolutely we're in this world of you know wide open boundaries um you know you do um 
Cats is a bluegrass rendition. And one of our most popular songs, we, we close our sets. Um, we close our shows with this is, um, uh, friends and celebration day from Led Zeppelin three. And it's been one of our most popular songs has been that cover because nobody expected to hear an alt country band covering Led Zepp three and it works. Um, oh yeah, it works beautifully. It and works. It's and so much fun. Hear it right, and they hear it differently, and they already know it, so they love it already. You know, it's cool. So, and then you can you can entertain them with the rest of your stories in your life, but you leave them with. Uh, I agree with that. You leave them with something that they they know. Yeah, so. and I love I love doing covers of cool songs because it's fun to connect with a song. It, it's one thing to to write your own songs, and I think that's you know the ultimate reward but with great reward comes great responsibility and mm -hmm. it's a lot of it's really hard work to write a song that ends up being good or to know when it's not good and and oh, keep going at that and sometimes that's the, thing. the fun thing is to find a song that someone else has already written that speaks to you on all the levels that good songs speak to you and figuring out well how do I do this in, in my way, in a way that means something to me? And how can I transmit that to people? And there's a real, yeah. there's a real, you know, depth and joy to doing a cover song really well in an original way. That'll still like speak Johnny to people. Cash did hurt. And every time I, you know, Oh my God. Yes. I cry every time I, you know, I see that video and I just get weepy and it doesn't matter how many times I've seen it. It's like, it's so good. Yeah. It's, just it's one of those songs where it and and the original was great but to um just have some you know to have johnny cash the gravitas of that voice and that guy who has lived every minute of that song yeah doing that song just imparts this amazing depth to it it, it that is a really profound yeah profound someday thing. i'd like to have trent Reznor on just to ask him about that i want to talk to him about hurt for an hour like <laughs> oh please do that would be awesome <laughs> wouldn't it all right I this has been a really fast hour and I feel like we've sort of scratched the surface let's talk real quick because I feel like this is important because there are so <laughs> many girls out there who feel like maybe they're a little on their own you sing in two bands where you are the sole female and you work in an industry that that is largely uh all boys and tell me a little bit about that <laughs> um apart from you know getting told you play pretty girl pretty good for a girl oh mother uh, of god yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i mean I think, first of all, I'll start on an optimistic note that the situation has improved a lot in the last several years. Um, when I started out, there just weren't that many women to play with. It, it just wasn't as common. I'm sure they were out there. It was just a lot harder to connect. This was pre-internet as well. So there was that as well. And I kind of came from a male dominated background in a lot of ways. Um, I grew up on a farm, which was very, uh, guy centric culture, very physical labor sort of thing. And, um, 
it actually made me um, more of a feminist in a way because it was, I, I was never really, I never really understood that there were things I couldn't do right, because right. Um, I grew up around guys and I just did the things that the guys did and you work as hard as a guy and then, you know, you, you kick back or, you know, in a lot of ways, the women worked harder because then they would do all the things a guy did and then go back and make dinner afterwards. Um, but every everybody just did the work and as long as you got that done that was good enough for everybody else and you moved on kind of thing and it wasn't until I started getting out into more professional circles that it became more of an anomaly and I realized that I was the outlier as a girl and I didn't really have a lot of female influences to look up to um Lori Lewis was huge in the bluegrass world because she was out there pioneering being this amazing singer songwriter and fiddle player leading her own bluegrass band and and doing stuff like that um and and Alison Krauss had a huge amount of success and and that was amazing um it didn't really feel that accessible to me because I knew that I couldn't do what she did in the way that she did it um which was what she does absolutely beautiful and mm-hmm. um but it was, you know, to be honest, a little harder to connect to. Uh, but on country radio, when the chicks came along, it was mind blowing um, because Marty McGuire was out there. And here's a, a fiddle player who had won, you know, national championships, won at Winfield. And she and her sister, Emily, were players, like could actually hold their own with anybody in the Texas scene when it came to just picking. And if you listen, if you can get your hands on any of the out of print um, older chicks records where they're doing more of the Texas swing stuff, like the thank heavens for Dale Evans albums. Mm-hmm. They are picking and those girls are playing their butts off. And to see somebody like Marty and Emily take those instruments and know that they came from a trad background and take those to the arena rock level as women was absolutely mind-blowing because even as fiddle players at that level all we had up until then charlie daniels and that dude from the dave matthews band and neither of them would be considered good technical players by any stretch of the imagination whether you like the music or not is is a different thing but as far as them being good at their instruments I, i don't think anybody can make much of an argument for that and to have somebody like marty come on the scene and they're out there playing arenas and stadiums around the country and tearing it up in this, you know, rock country rock with a bluegrass background kind of thing was super mind blowing to somebody like me. And I still want to see them get even more credit for that. Um, yeah. yeah. But even regionally, you know, there just weren't that many girls to jam with. There weren't that many um it, it, it and it but that's changing now which is really good it's um you know women are winning uh instrumentalists of the year both at the americana music awards and at ibma um, the international bluegrass music association so we're definitely um getting out there so for the gals out there just do you you just do you play as good as you can play and do what makes you happy and find people who make you happy to do that and find people who make you a better player. And that usually means trying to play with people who are better players than you, um, mm-hmm. which I 
have been really fortunate to do over the years. Um, some of them have been women, most of them have been men, but there have been, you know, I think the odds are, are turning now and, you know, just, uh, don't take no guff either. (laughs) I feel like this has been like a masterclass, Sarah. This has been great. Come back anytime. Oh, shucks. Well, thanks Kelly. Come back anytime. We'll talk about whatever comes up. We'll, we'll make a plan. Then we'll just do our, whatever happens. Cause that's usually. That's how yeah. the best conversations go. Um, well, I've got to, I've got to get started writing the next record because I'm a, I'm unlike Jim. I'm a slow writer. It takes me, <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm jealous. <laughs> it takes me a couple of years to get enough material for a good album. So I'm getting started on that this fall and, and winter. And do you, do you would... tap into old notebooks and stuff or how do you, mm-hmm. you know, you just keep the writing going? Yeah, I've got a bunch of notebooks with just when lines come up, you just jot them down. And even the notepad on your phone, if that's yep. chock-a-block with stuff where you might not have a full song, but if you get a good line, just chuck it in there and and then see what kind of comes out. But it's been, fortunately, it's been a really busy summer. So I'm hoping this fall and, and winter will be a good time to get a little quiet and some headspace and start working on the next one. Yeah. And then we can, and then we can talk about that. And then we can talk about chickens and cocktails and recipes and all sorts of fun stuff. Oh, anytime, <laughs> anytime. And, you know, as you guys get down, down South to uh, near, you know, North of Philly, you know, <laughs> which is like Southern tier for you guys, uh, you know, I will be there. I will be there. So. Uh, wonderful. Well, you're not so very far away from us. So, so what, do you want, what do you want me to play you out with? Um, I was thinking last time for everything, but we could go Northeast. I could go. Uh, it's, it's your pick. If you want to, if you want to do last time for everything, cause you mentioned it earlier. Yeah, that's, that's what I think. I'm going to play yeah. you out with that. This is off of, uh, Sarah Milanovic's album Northeast which is all about living in the Northeast (laughs) (laughs) for better or worse for better or for worse. Sarah, thanks so much for doing this and we'll do it again. Oh, that sounds great. Thanks so much for having me, Kelly. You bet.
The Creative Backstory is a collaboration between producer Alan Fleming, associate producer Shay Zukowski, and me, Kelly Planer. Our theme song was written and performed by Dave Coyne. Just to let you know, our podcast wouldn't be remotely possible without the support of JuxtaHub, Emmaus, Pennsylvania's Arts and Innovation Center, where people from all walks of life gather, create, and grow. The views expressed by our team and our guests are not necessarily those of JuxtaHub and may or may not reflect their values. That being said, if you've been inspired by a creative person in your life or have a story about your favorite creative processes, we'd love to hear about it. Contact us at thecreativebackstory at gmail.com.